Good morning. Happy Sabbath. Good morning. My name is Russell Atkins. I'm filling in for Dr. Jennings. Uh, he is in Northern California, PUC, St. Helena. I want to welcome those uh, who are visiting today uh, and also the regular members. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the way I do things, I rely on audience participation. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, yet another opportunity to get a better glimpse of you uh, through the book of Revelation and through uh, your the prophetic word that you've given us, that you've blessed us with, uh, so that we know what to expect and when to expect it. I want to ask for uh, continued blessings uh, on this class corporately and individually. Uh, please send your spirit today to guide uh, our lesson and our study, our conversation, uh, and bring us back safely in weeks ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, not a trick question. How how many in here were raised Seventh-day Adventists? Okay. How many of you who were raised Seventh-day Adventists were raised in an atmosphere of fear regarding the uh, end-time events, the, the time of trouble? Yeah, I can raise my hand as well. How many of you were not? <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, that's, that's, I think it's a better question. Well, good for you, too. <laughs> good for both of you. <laughs> because I was. I can remember going to being dragged to Revelation seminars as a kid and coming out of there with a sense of overwhelming dread, fear. And I did not, I did not have a clearer understanding of Jesus of Nazareth when I left those seminars. I was talking before class started with one of the members in here. She, she recounted a dream that she had about uh, waking up, the Lord come, all of her friends and family's feet's leaving the ground, and her feet are planted firmly on the ground. I had that exact same dream. And so did her older brother. Okay, well, why is it, how is it that Some of us, some can see a very clear picture of Jesus of Nazareth in the book of Revelation, and some cannot. Okay, I reference Martin Luther, you know, 500 years ago, one of the primary reformers of the, of the Christian faith. And in the preface to his uh, book, preface to the Revelation of St. John, this is from Luther, quote, Finally, let everyone think of it as his own spirit leads him. Okay, first of all, get, let that first sentence breathe. That was a breath of fresh air to the Catholic dogma that he was coming out of, where you, you let the, the papacy tell you what to think and believe. <coughs> Apologies, my allergies are, are giving me a difficult time today. Finally, let everyone think of it as his own spirit leads me. As his own spirit leads him, excuse me. My spirit cannot accommodate itself to this book. For me, this is the reason enough not to think highly of it. Christ is neither taught nor known in it. This is Luther talking about Revelation. But to teach Christ, this is the thing which an apostle is bound above all else to do. As Christ says in Acts 1, 8, You shall be my witnesses. Therefore, I stick to the books which present Christ to me clearly and purely. Martin Luther, in the study of Revelation, didn't see Christ anywhere in it. 
It wasn't taught or revealed. How is that possible? Isn't the first verse the, the revelation of Jesus Christ? Some, some, some versions title the book, Revelation of Jesus Christ. How do we miss it? Or how do we get it? How do we glean it? It's a better question. Well, I think one reason it's difficult for us to see, I mean, I've never seen Christ in the book of Revelation until I became more mature in my understanding of who he is, really. And I think it's because people have, they don't have a basis, they don't have a grounding in the true picture of who Jesus is, to see that this is a revelation of him, because it is his final accomplishment. It's his second coming. It's when he comes to take his people home. So it, it does reveal his, you know, to me it reveals what he came to accomplish, and he did. And it's about him in heaven and taking us home. And okay, well, I, I, I resonate with your your suggestion on a need of maturity. Absolutely. Um, there are there are many, um, however mature Christians and mature Seventh-day Adventists that misinterpret this book significantly. I mean, this this book is highly symbolic, and we pick and choose the parts that we want to we want to declare literal, and the ones that we want to declare symbolic. Lori, and I think a lot of people they see a disconnect between the Jesus that was revealed in the four Gospels, who makes a lot of people uncomfortable because he's humble. He did not come as they hoped the Messiah or the Redeemer would come. Even his disciples didn't. Revelation gives them, I think, more of a picture of what they're hoping for, where he's coming with a rod of iron and a sword, and he's going to... Yeah, a tattoo on, tattoo on his leg, coming to kick ass and take names, yeah. Bring mm-hmm. his enemies, as his footstool, and things like that. So I think there's a disconnect between the two Jesuses. Well said. Any other thoughts? This is from the Sabbath lesson. Uh, a, quote, a crucial aspect of the Old Testament references in Revelation is that, taken together with the rest of the book, they reveal Jesus. Absolutely. Revelation is all about Jesus, all about who he is, all about what he has done for his people, all about what he will do for us at the end of time. Any focus on last day events must keep Jesus front and center out of necessity. Again, well said. Which is exactly what the book of Revelation does. This week's lesson looks at Jesus in the book of Revelation. I guess my questions are, is it only the last day events that must keep Jesus front and center? Or should the entire entirety of Scripture keep Jesus front and center? Including the Old Testament sanctuary system, which later in the lesson, uh, the, the lesson draws some similarities between a heavenly sanctuary and an earthly sanctuary. And why must any focus on last day events keep Jesus front and center? Yes. Well, the um, if you look at Revelation, it has a whole bunch of complicated stuff. Beasts and images and all these kinds of things. And you can easily get caught up in the detail of well, what does this mean? What does that mean? And, and it sort of comes to what does it mean to prepare for the time of the end? Uh, does it mean learn all these symbols so that you're not confused in the end, so that you don't get confused, so you're not lost? Mm-hmm. Or is it cling to Jesus, accept his robe of righteousness? Um, this is 
this helps us understand God, but it's not required. It's not on the final exam. It's um, the, the, the final exam is Jesus and his righteousness and accepting the gift. Rachel. When you think about the experience of the disciples who were believers in Jesus mm-hmm. and how their uh, preconceived ideas prevented them from understanding his mission and his death, but they wouldn't have understood his mission and his death afterward if they hadn't been grounded in the Old Testament scriptures, and then they could see that they had been indeed fulfilled. And I think that might be how it's going to be for us, that we should study and know Revelation, we should ponder it, we should try to understand it, but as those events are revealed, I think we're going to be surprised. Well said. Um, what, what events in Revelation have yet to be fulfilled? The coming of Christ. Setting up the New Jerusalem. Yeah, the second and third coming. Uh, I correct me if I'm wrong, but hasn't every other major event in Revelation already been already seen fulfillment? The third angel's message hasn't been brought, taken to the whole world yet. Good. Well, that's that's what's going to usher in the the return. Okay. Is it all one big event that you look at? Is yeah. Happening, or is, are you looking at individual little minutia? And I think that's also a good point. Like he mentioned earlier, we can get wrapped up in the minutia of describing the beast and knowing what uh, nation, states, or geopolitical systems they represent and, and understanding the different years of prophecy and the timing of this, that, and the other. And we can miss the big picture entirety in its entirety, which my understanding is the, the entire book of Revelation is a an overarching view of the entire great controversy from from heaven all the way to the end, to the third coming. It's a great, concise summary of the uh, great controversy between Lucifer and Christ. Yes? Not being brought up as an Adventist and coming from other churches, I listened to people like John Hagee when I was younger, and he's like a hellfire and brimstone pastor, and then coming into the Adventist church and listening to the different pastors, pastors here, and then finally being led to know Jesus' true love. So I've probably read Revelations a hundred times or more, and now when I read it, I see a God of love and mercy and grace and my perception of all those symbols and everything that goes on there is so different. Yeah, mine too. It's amazing how much God loves us and what he would do for us Mm-hmm. The difference for me, I can't speak for you, the difference for me is a better understanding of Jesus himself and then interpreting Revelation through that lens as opposed to learning Revelation in a Revelation seminar when you're 12 years old and then trying to shoehorn Jesus into an understanding of beasts and lambs. Okay, I, I, I didn't have a, enough maturity or nuance to understand the, the difference between angry, raging beasts representing earthly governments and their methods of, of uh, coercion and threat and punishment and imposed law versus the Lamb who, you know, God himself, the nature of God, who will allow his created beings to, to murder him on a cross. And our vocabulary has changed since then. So can you imagine looking through John's eyes? That's probably exactly what he saw. Not the 
symbolic side. That looks like an angry beast. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure it was. I can't imagine what he saw through his eyes, and he described it the way he felt. Mm-hmm. All right, Sunday's lesson. The structure of Revelation. Now, I, I quoted, uh, this is from The Remedy, in Tim's preface to the book of Revelation, because he, he treats Revelation differently. When we were in South Africa, um, we got some, we got some of our friends in South Africa who, who confronted him and said, you know what? We love this remedy except Revelation. Why, why did you, well, what did you do? Why did you do Revelation the way you did it? If you haven't read the remedy version of Revelation, I would strongly encourage you to do so. Because Tim Tim expands and, and he he uh, he outlines what some of the symbols represent. He uh, he doesn't take it for granted that we already know what what some of the symbology represents or what his opinion of it is that, that they represent. Uh, and I thought it was very enlightening to re reread the the remedy version of Revelation. But anyway, these are some some rules that he suggests for interpretation of the passages used in Revelation. If one part of a passage is symbolic or a metaphor, then the rest is symbolic and metaphor, unless clear reasons to be literal are expressed in the text. Okay, and this is this problem where we we will take certain piece of a text as uh, symbolic and and prophetic, and then others are literal. The Bible will be used to interpret itself, i.e. symbol symbol interpretations will use Bible definitions before other definitions. The general theme is that of the conflict between Christ and Satan. God's character of love never changes. Therefore, interpretations will never result in God being represented in a character other than that of love. And God's law of love never changes. Therefore, interpretations will always be in harmony with God's law of love. Okay, I think these are some great, some great points to keep in mind and a good framework to operate off of when we're when we're looking at Revelation or any other book of the Bible for that matter. Uh, in lesson states that uh, suggests that the first ten chapters uh, of Revelation are historical, and where again we're talking about the structure of Revelation. While the last ones are uh, the remainder of them are eschatological and and in nature, which means in dealing with last day events, and, and chapter twelve is is somewhat a mixture of the two. I guess my, my first question was: can, can historical and future events be separated into two different things without peril, or is history bound to repeat itself? Yes. Yeah, I, I think history repeats itself, and a lot of places in the Bible you can see it fulfilled. And then it's fulfilled again. Yeah. So, um, so for each period in history, the Bible is relevant to that group of people. And so, even though we've seen things fulfilled in Revelation, we may see them fulfilled again. Mm-hmm. And there, there's there's actually evidence of Jesus doing that with the Old Testament, where there was a traditional view of a text. And then he comes up with a new view of the text. I mean, look at look at your own your own personal life. Has history repeated itself? <laughs> yes, it has. <laughs> Thanks. 
It repeats itself more often than it should in my life, for better and worse. Yes. You know, when I was raised, I was told that Revelation and, other, and Daniel and other aspects were, were a big guidebook that then we could be going down and follow each step. And yet when Christ was at the Last Supper um, in John, uh, John 13, he said, um, I tell you this now, before it happens, you think, oh good, you know, he's doing prophecy too. Mm-hmm. You know, so that when it does happen, you will believe. He's not telling them in advance so that they know the next step. Right. And that's experiential relationship with God rather than I have all the 12 steps or 18 steps or 99 steps or whatever Mm -hmm. of each passage as it goes through. And this is what's going to happen next. You know, and too often we get diverted by our map. Mm. which is drawn on the future, which we do not know. Yeah, exactly. Rachel. I'd like to comment on uh, how the Bible is relevant to people of every age, because I'm a 16th century scholar, and you see in those texts the same emphasis on the Beast of Revelation 13, the pure woman in Revelation 12, the... uh, explanation of persecutions of God's people so clearly this was so comforting to the people at that time and um, in the 17th century of course under the influence of the Castle of Trent the papacy um, many of these interpretations were discredited in the Christian world but the reformers by and large thought about these matters very similar to a historic Adventism uh, Monday's lesson, Images of Jesus. All right, the, the lesson gives us several texts that uh, name and or describe uh, Jesus. Revelation 1.5, Revelation 1.8, Revelation 5.8, 19, 1-15, and Revelation 21.6. So, Revelation 1.5, he's described as the faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, and ruler of the kings of the earth. What does this mean? What does it mean to be a faithful witness? I mean, the mere fact that you hear a faithful witness makes you wonder if there are other types of witnesses. He was always faithful in witnessing the character of his father. Good. Yes, absolutely. He was accurate. Two people came out from the presence of God and told two different stories. Help, help me out. At the beginning of evil, two witnesses came from the presence of God. Two beings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm with you. When you said people, I, I, no. all right, I, I'm, I'm on board now. Yeah, two beings came from God's very presence with different, different stories, different, different, uh, different witnesses. One faithful, one unfaithful. Yeah. Okay. Good. Well said. Firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? Firstborn in importance. <laughs> right. In, um, let's see, I think it's Thursday's lesson. I had a question. When Jesus describes himself as firstborn from the dead, uh, did he forget about Lazarus or Jairus' daughter or the 
the widow of Nain's son, whom he personally raised from the dead. Moses. Well, I don't know that Moses was raised before uh, Christ was on earth. But he was there. That's true. He was there. He was there at the Mount Transfiguration. Moses. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> what about the, the resurrections in the Old Testament? The widow of Zarephath, the Shunammite woman. Or the, or the guy who uh, was tossed into the grave of Elijah's bones and, and uh, popped up alive. How many of you forgot about that story, by the way? Second Kings 13. I mean, did he forget about all these other resurrections? Or well, what, what does it mean to be firstborn from the dead? I always thought that it meant that because he, he did rise from the grave, now he had the power over death. He will rise from the grave because he did. So that's why I always thought he was called the firstborn of the resurrection. So you're not taking a literal firstborn. He was literally the first person to be re- first being to be resurrected. No. Okay. The other resurrections were different. The other resurrections had somebody intervening. Right. He himself perfectly right. restored the law of love, the law of life in in him, and that brought him to life because that's how life is originated. And all the other people died again. He didn't. No, Moses didn't. I think that's an important point. Tim talks a bit about, and this is something that I have, I'm beginning to wrap my mind around, but an infinite God lives outside of the constraints of time. And anything that Christ accomplished at Calvary some 2018 years ago can be applied anywhere in eternity past or eternity future. So none of the Old Testament resurrections would have occurred, even though many of them you know, went to sleep again. None of them would have occurred without Christ accomplishing what he accomplished and restoring into mankind the, uh, the law of love and harmony with God's law and, and restoring the, the uh, nobility of creation of the original Adam back into the human species. None of it would have happened. And salvation wouldn't have been available to anyone. Yeah. Not the remedy at that point. Right. Wendell. When an artist makes a a print of the original, the original is the first. It's the pattern, the perfect pattern from which the others come from. Mm -hmm. In that regard, it's first. Okay? And so... In Christ is our pattern in many ways. Yeah. Resurrection of the dead as well as in life. And so, even though he was not the first human. Chronologically, yes. You know, he was not the first, you know, Adam was the first human, and yet Christ is truly the, the firstborn. Hmm. Good. What does it mean, ruler of the kings of the earth? He's the creator of the kings of the earth. He is the Lord. He's the creator. Okay. But what does it mean to rule the kings of the earth? I mean, when, when we when we hear this language, uh, how many how much of Christianity automatically goes to that mindset where yeah, he's going to rule them. He's going to rule them with a rod of iron, and he's going to he's going to topple them like a dictator, and he's going to set up who he sets wants to set up, and if they don't 
if they don't please him, he's going to take them down and put in someone who will. I mean, how many how many of us go to that mindset all, automatically? I, mean, I still fight this. I'd like to go to that reference about the rod of iron. Okay. okay. Um, I don't remember where it is in Revelation, but I look, you know, in looking up that passage because that passage has been hit on my head mm-hmm. many times. That passage is a is a shepherd's shepherding device. And if you look up in transliteration versions or whatever, it's talking about a shepherd with a staff that cannot be broken. It's not talking about an arbitrary hitting you on the head with a steel rod that does some damage. Mm-hmm. It's talking about a care and protection and direction that cannot be diverted because of who of what it is and who he is and strength. So this is not an arbitrary rule in which there someone is being vindictive. Coerced and punished, yeah. Whatever. This is a powerful protecting device or characteristic of God that he is shepherding his people, the nations, as a shepherd with utmost power and benevolence and whatnot. And so this rod of iron is really a staff or a... That, that's great. And you know what? I, I now understand that, but there's still a, a, a primitive part of my brain. It's almost hardwired into my DNA from... The way I was raised, or 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 whatever it may be, literal genetic code that makes me think of makes me think of uh, okay, you know, here he's gonna it's gonna be punitive. Adam and Eve fled. Yeah, because they were afraid. Right. Right. Exactly. So, um, and much of Christianity still teaches that this will be a a punitive, angry rod of iron because that's the God they want to believe in, Rachel. So when you talk about what's hardwired in our DNA, it's natural for human beings to return evil for evil. Yes. Um, it was a maximum among the Greeks. Mm-hmm. Give good to those who give you good, give evil to those who give you evil. Revenge is a natural spirit. Watch little children. <laughs> you hit me, I hit you back. It's, it's natural. And God, the principle of his kingdom is he always returns good for evil. No matter what happens, he always returns good. Beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning. Um, Joseph in Genesis 34, you meant it to me for evil, but God meant it to me for good. So that's a, that's a fundamental principle of God is that he never returns evil for evil. And it's hard for us to understand because we're not like that. It's Yeah, it's part of the carnal, it's part of that carnal human nature that's still being eradicated for me, anyway. It seems to me like when it's talking about the rule, he rules the, the kings of the earth. Dr. Jennings has a chapter in his late in the God Shaped Heart that talks about the literal power of truth and love, which actually is much more powerful than coercive, fear based punishment, earthly powers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what it's talking about, that his his power comes from he's the he is the way, the truth and the life. He is the truth and love, which in actuality is more powerful than any human king 
that looks powerful here on the earth. Uh, you're talking about the one where he's talking about uh, uh, developing loyalties. Yeah. Yeah. What 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 produces the most loyalty? Yeah. And be loyal to someone else. Yeah. Right. I mean, that, that can lead us down a deep rabbit hole. Um, I guess my question is, since since the law of love is the law of the life in the in the universe. Why, why haven't nation states taken to adopting this? Take Israel and Syria, or Israel and Iran, or, or whomever. Okay, why, do, why doesn't one of them stop, uh, you know, you've sent missiles over here, we're going to shoot some of your whatevers. Why, why don't they stop and, 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 and um, you know, reply with forgiveness, re- reply with mercy? Because it's pride. They want to show they're the bigger, stronger. Selfishness. Yeah. It's protection of the institution. It's the same reason human governments can't operate that way. Corporations can't operate that way. Churches, bureaucracies can't operate that way. Okay, but is this because institutions and governments and corporations are made up of of self-absorbed people? Likely. Yeah. Actually, love does work as principle. When we are employed and we have a person that we don't like, we, we have the freedom to leave. It works in, in governments. Look at what countries people want to live in. Mm-hmm. When you have a coercive, tyrannous government, do people want to live there? No. If they have an opportunity, they will leave. Love does, as a principle, does work. It is attractive. You look at, in the United States, states which have had benevolent welfare systems became rapidly populated. Um, it, it, people do. They are attractive. But, but is that love, a benevolent welfare system? Well, you know, that's a questionable thing. But, you know, people, people will flee uh, coercive governments if they have an opportunity to do that. You have to have um, protection. In the same way we talked about the rod, the shepherd and the rod. The rod is comfort for the sheep in the loving environment, but it's also protection from the wolf and the lion or whatever else. If you're a nation state and you operate on 100% love um, and do not protect yourself, if you take, take literally... Um, Jesus uh, turned the other cheek, and you have you've eliminated any capability to protect yourself. You will be attacked and taken over by someone who does not have that philosophy. Okay, I, I like I like where you're going, and you're saying that we, you know, here on Earth, we're still. We're still because we're in the world. We're still living in a state of altered reality. We're living, right. you know, under the law of sin and death, in addition to it being antagonistic to the law of love. Right. And our, our altered reality is still reality. If we live long enough, we're going to bury our parents. If we live long enough, we're going to go to the grave ourselves. That's, that's our reality. It's not the way life in the rest of the universe operates, but it's how life on Earth still operates. And I, I like your point about, um, you know, it, 
you still see you still see population flows to but I I, says, <clears throat> I guess I would argue I would a million people in the world would move to the United States right now if we opened our borders. I would argue that they would move here for selfish reasons, not for altruistic reasons. They would they would move here because the government is less coercive. I, I'm not saying our government is wonderful, right? But there are worse places in the world. Yeah, on the other side of that, what would happen if we? 100% unilaterally disestablished our entire military. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just put everything, lay everything down. Right. We're still in this world. We're, We're still in this world. Other, other governments would take us over. Yeah. Well, I think you're right. Israelites to conquer Canaan when they went in. I mean. Why? Because. He, I don't understand it all. I'm going to try. <laughs> yes, sir. Where does the early church kind of come in? Martyrdom, submissive to the Roman Empire, accepting that although they, they, they loved, they knew that any day they'd be thrown to the line. And, and the impact that 100% love, I guess, had on when they died, the impact that they had on the people just watching. Where does that come in? I think it's a great point. Um, you know, the Christians singing hymns while uh, gladiators and wild animals were te- tearing to pieces uh, had an impact on the the audience. You know, instead of seeing, instead of getting a show where people are terrified and trying to fight back uh, to preserve their own life, they they watched a group of people that uh, were not afraid to die, and it, it started raising some questions. And their the, the bloodshed was like fertilizer for Christianity. Look at the impact it had on Saul. Yeah. And Stephen. Mm-hmm. Another uh, way in which um, the Roman Empire was influenced by Christianity was its egalitarianism, its acceptance of the, the slave as well as the free, the willingness to be, uh, to include in the church people of every station of life. Of the elimination of caste and status and and uh, it's very attractive. Lest we uh, portray the earth too good, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, Don't want to do that. Or any of the movements too well. But this last week there was a celebration of Martin Luther King. Yeah, and, and he is his non-combatancy, his civil disobedience. You know, was a, an extremely powerful weapon in his fight for equal rights for African Americans mm-hmm. and Gandhi before him, etc. Um, there is something about the willingness to not retaliate is a law. It has an effect on you. Yeah. Whether you want it to have an effect on you or not. That may be to harden you. Mm-hmm. There were those who were hardened by that process, but there were also those who were softened by the, by the process, and it didn't make a world of difference. Well said. All right, second one, Revelation 1 8. I am the Alpha and Omega, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. What does this mean? What's Christ trying to tell us in this uh, section? He's God. He and the Father are one in purpose, in mission. 
They are at one in character. They were pre-existent, eternity past, and eternity future. He has life underived and unborrowed from anyone else or anything else. Revelation 5.8, he describes the lamb. You know, I can't comprehend forever. I know. Forever past or forever uh, future. I had this discussion with a patient just this past week. You know, how, what... How do you how do finite beings comprehend living forever? They they asked me how how are we not going to get bored in heaven with all this time? <laughs> I mean they're literally I mean and you know she was serious and and I I guess part of me wondered the same thing. Hey, I mean I I told her you know what we we're going to have a lot of a lot of created beings to share our testimony with and and we're going to have all sorts of things to learn and you know what what's what's human's biggest constraint on this earth it's not wealth it's time we're constrained by time my wife has often accused me of wishing to go to school for the rest of my life yeah yeah (laughs) that's not a bad thing i mean we're, we're we're called to be lifelong learners well you live forever. Think about how much you have to learn, and think about how how much you'll have yet to learn. With the difference between uh, infinite God and and uh, finite minds. If you look at each of us who are learned in our area of occupation, yeah, and there's thousands of occupations that also carries over into knowledge. And service for others mm-hmm. that can be incredible. Uh, it, yes, yes, it, it will. I mean, just take, take the take the one little minutia of mathematics, and think about how much we'll have to learn about mathematics. So, for some people, that would be hell. It would. <laughs> Touche. Yes, it would. I just want to clarify, you don't have to learn math. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think we may need some application of mathematics if we're going to travel from planet to planet. We may need some understanding of how to fold space and time and and, and uh, operate in the outside the constraints of gravity or whatever. I think we can do some things without knowing how it works. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> so the lamb what, what, is, what, is it, what does it mean to describe Jesus as the lamb you know, our, our primary understanding in here of, of what the lamb means we've been over this uh, quite a few times but just to review once more and not just a lamb but a slaughtered lamb a slain lamb so how, how, do, we, how do we contrast the lamb with the ruler of the kings of the earth He's humble, despite the fact that he's all-powerful. He's humble also, like a lamb. That is true he's, power. Yeah, he's willing. Right, that's true power. He's willing to give his life. He's safe with the power. Yeah. He, he's safe with with absolute power. You know, back back to our discussion on the beasts, you know, the, the carnivorous, destroying, um, overwhelming course of beasts. Is that how lambs behave? No, they're quite passive. In fact, 
I don't want to be accused of heresy, but some would say they're 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 not that smart. If you have if you have a group of sheep and the, you have a wall and they're they're being filed down single file, they'll jump one will jump over it, and the next one will jump over it, and the next one will jump over it. If you remove the wall, they'll continue jumping because that's what the one in front did. <laughs> and that's why I think we have multiple, multiple visions of who Christ is. Okay, because one doesn't describe in human right. understanding who He is. Well, I, the, the contrast and symbolism between some crazy-looking beast with seven heads and ten horns, and and you know horns speaking blasphemy and contrast that with a lamb with blood on its coat uh, that, that, that should, that, that probably got John's attention but you, but you have the lamb but you also have a guy riding on a white horse with, yes. with a sword coming out of his mouth sword coming out of his mouth, yep, that's right but we're compared with lambs because of what the lady there said she wasn't raised Adventist but we the ones that were raised Adventists still jumping because the first ones were jumping. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well said. <laughs> it is true. It's it's not funny because it's funny. It's funny because it's true. It's it's absolute truth. You're right. Yeah, we're we're still jumping over the wall that's not there. <laughs> And again, yep, Revelation 19, the writer, faithful and true, the word, the, the quote, word of God, you know, with the sword coming out of his mouth. This uh, dovetails nicely with Hebrews 4.12. Someone look that up for me. There are several uh, riders uh, and, and horses and, and uh, et cetera in Revelation, and not all of them are Christ. There are, there are the, the red horse, the pale horse, uh, a couple of horses that uh, represent Satan. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It cuts all the way through to where soul and spirit meet, to where joints and marrow come together. It judges the desires and thoughts of the heart. Okay, so the word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing bone from marrow. So when we see the symbology of a rider on a white horse with a sword sticking out of his mouth, do we take this literally? Swing his head back and forth to destroy the wicked? Or is this symbolic of the the truth, the word of God, absolute truth with a capital T, truth in eternity past, truth for the present, truth for eternity future? And that's what destroys the wicked, because they did not love the truth and thus be saved. Revelation twenty one six again the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end, so that I think this is telling us that the controversy began with Christ and it ends with Christ, and throughout it's all been about the nature and character of Christ and His Father. Uh, from the bottom section in where are we still in Monday's lesson the bottom section. How can we learn to make the life, death, resurrection, and return of Jesus the central focus of our own existence 
and the foundation for the moral choices we make. Our character is supposed to be that of Christ. That probably should be our, the study that we have. All of those things that you said, those should be our focus because we want to be like Jesus. Okay. I had some questions about this, as, as you may uh, you may not be too surprised. <laughs> is it only the moral choices that we should consider? Or should we consider other choices under that constraint? Yeah, you could argue that you know the food you consume ends up being a moral choice. Because it affects your brain one way or the other, for better or for worse. The entertainment you consume, the thoughts you think. It's not just the moral choices that we need to to consider this. We need to make the life, death, resurrection, and the return of Jesus central focus in every choice. And why? Because love is central. You did all that for love. Okay. And, And why is love important? I would argue that that's the only way that you can have him central is because of the passion that that love brings. Is, is understanding his character, is understanding who he is, and that Jesus Christ and his resurrection, you know, and everything that he's done, past, present, and future, that becomes centerfold because of the love that you have for him. That's, I believe, the catalyst for, for keeping that central, you know, every day when we make choices. Thank you. I think we uh, are able to do this by a functional understanding and application of his law of love. Why love is important is because that's how life is designed to operate in the universe, the law of life. And what does it mean, the functional understanding and application of his law? We first have to know the nature of the law. We have to understand the difference between imposed and designed law. We have to understand his law does not function like earthly government laws. His law is design law, natural law, and not an imperial law, not a dictatorship. How many of you... All right, I'm going to speak for myself. When it's How long have we been studying it? How long have we been integrating this design law, uh, imposed law, uh, tension into our study? Has it been... Five, six, seven years now? Yeah. Um, I I cannot tell you what what a difference this has made in my understanding of of Scripture, of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, of the nature of the character of God, heaven, all of these things. It was like it was the it was the the linchpin, the the act the key that unlocked a whole wealth of, of new knowledge for me. Amen. And without a without a without it, it it would be impossible to go back to that to that other understanding. And it, it just unlocked spiritual things. It yes. Unlocked very temporal reality, relationship, lots of yeah. music. Speed limits. Yes. <laughs> I mean seriously, all What's interesting about it is that without realizing it, your life has been changed to the point that your actions are different. People that know me now, that knew me, uh, say, I can't believe how much you've changed, Tina. You know, and I'm like, I haven't changed. I don't see right. You know? But yet, when I look back on it, my ideals, the way I interpret things, 
in everyday life. It's totally different than what I did before. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Well said. You know, so this this understanding and this acceptance and this um, integration of of the function that God's law is design law and it doesn't function like human laws, I think is critical. And if you you've you've brought up multiple times the the you're if you're talking to friends or family members and trying to trying to bring them into a clearer understanding of this and it often gets derailed okay and I, i've been there too the one thing the one thing that is critical at the outset is you have to establish what the other person's understanding of how god's law functions because if they think that god's law is functioning a dictatorship you know, with imposed law and penalties must be meted out for violations of the law then definitions, word, words will have different meanings. Definitions will be different. Uh, pathways will be different. Brain, brain functions will be different. You'll be speaking a different. You'll be speaking two different languages. But the thing is, this makes so much more sense. Sure, it does. It's like it ties everything together as before. It was just so erratic. It seemed like I, exactly it all comes together in understanding. And it's like somehow, if we could get this across to people, how much more meaning it has to your life. It's exactly right. So that was kind of a personal aside about how how much different things function in my head in my life after coming to this realization. And it, and when when it when it first when I first heard it, you know, it rang a bell. And I thought, wait, well, what do you say? And I heard it a couple more times. And I thought, well, good grief, that makes so much sense. It made so much sense that I felt like, okay, I'm getting off on the wrong track here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it can't be this easy, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's always been so hard to be a Christian. It seemed like it was a constant battle, a constant fight. And now it come, it's understanding. I mean, not that I do everything right, I'm not saying that. But it all makes more sense now than it did before. Yeah, I understand how people can take the text and the Bible like we used to take them. After, after this class, it's just, it's totally different. I feel like I have a, a different religion. Yes. Yeah. And, and you do. And, and thank God we do. Thank God we have a different religion. But when you present it like this to your friends or family, they're like, be careful, Tina. You do have a different religion. That's right. So be careful. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's heresy. Yeah. I, I think it's the same religion, just from a different angle. So it's like there's a statue here, there's the truth. You're looking at it from this direction, and now you're looking at it from a different direction. I think that's right. I mean, you're looking at God from a different direction. <laughs> you can take it that way. That, that wall is not there anymore between you and God. And we don't have to... Yeah, the veil, veil's been torn down. That wall is not there anymore. Like she said, it's so easy now mm-hmm. to read and understand, and, and, and why do I need to jump anymore? I can just walk to him and yeah. his hands and embrace him. Yeah, the, the proverbial sanctuary veil has been torn down, Correct. and now we can see the most holy place. Amen. And it's, it puts such a burden on your heart to present this, especially to the young people. Yeah. Because you hate to see them grow up with the same outlook and philosophy of Christ, the religion, as we did. And it's like, somehow, it would be nice if we could get this across to them before they're so engrossed, engraved into this other way. Before they're twice the son of hell as they were before. Yeah, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> I would. I was. 
Yeah. I grew I I I readily admit it. I was twice the son of hell. But when you when you're raised in when you're indoctrinated into this imposed law um structure and and the, well, that's the way God's law functions, you're you're twice removed from from being able to you have to unlearn that first before you see the before you understand the right. And there's still still synapses in my brain that want to fire in an old imposed imperial dictator god construct. It's still there. Well, I can say I'm grateful for the way I was raised, because it could have been a whole lot worse. At least I was raised with the understanding of God and heaven. And hey, Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm not trying to badmouth my dearly departed parents. But anyway, they, they, did, they did what they did. But, you know, we're, I'm still a product of, of their upbringing, of friends I associated with, of their parents, of school systems I went to. Uh, churches that I went to, it's it is what it is. So having to unlearn that, I mean, that and that's what Christ was talking about. It, you've searched the earth for a convert and make him twice the son of hell, because you you erect more barriers to their salvation by teaching this imposed law construct. Peggy, very difficult for the church as a whole and all the churches of the world. To truly understand God's love. I'm a mother. Some of my kids were bad at times. And if they were really horrible, I'm not going to stop loving my children. I'm not going to what just watch them burn up. God's not going to do this. God is love. He loves us more than we can love our children. He's not going to punish us by burning and letting us watch people burn. Even the people we don't like, uh, someone pointed out, I wouldn't even want to watch the evil people burn. Don't want, so what does it say about you if you are looking forward to one of your enemies? Uh, the, th- the attitude, well, don't worry about it. God's going to get God The way God would get them would be in this life and help them to change Amen. to be a godly person. Amen. God is love. We don't understand it. Yeah, and, and yet you know, much of Christianity teaches just exactly what you're saying. That um, You can find passages that suggest that the, the people on the wall will be laughing gleefully when they watch, watch their friends and family members and enemies uh, struggling and, and being tormented forever. Throw that part out. Yeah, I mean it's it's antithetical to God is love. The 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 two the those two principles can't exist coexist together. It's impossible. I think we answered that question about our choices, foundation for how we make the changes, the moral yeah that you were reading because she said her family, her friends see her difference mm-hmm. when she was before. Well, that was my second point. Uh, you know, I, when I. When I kind of process in my head, okay, well, what does it mean to have a functional understanding application of the law? You understand that it's design law and not imposed law. And the application of his law of love and the different subsections of the law of love, like the law of worship, the laws of health, laws of physics, the laws of uh, liberty, the law of exertion, uh, the law of restoration, all the, the law of giving, all of these subsections of the law, you, have, you apply them. To our lives, and this result results in the transformation of character that I like Christ. Where friends and family say you're not the same person you used to be, and they say that 
meaning that you're better, not, not that you're worse. Uh, well, here we are at the end. Okay, there's some stuff in Tuesday's lesson about the sanctuary where the lesson suggests it's a actual literal sanctuary. And quite frankly, I'm glad we didn't get to that because I'm no expert on the sanctuary. <laughs> so you guys can read that for yourselves. I think there's a lot of misinterpretation about the sanctuary, both in, in uh, Protestant Christianity and specifically in Adventism as well. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the revelations uh, of your character that you've given us in the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the overarching picture of the uh, great controversy from beginning to end. Thank you for giving us um, insights as to how, how it will eventually end. Uh, we don't need to know the timing of it. We just need to know how it ends. Uh, and when it ends with every being and every every atom saying that God is love. I thank you for your character. Thank you for the gift of your son. In Jesus' name, amen.